We're using creativity to express our curiosity and our aspiration with what we just learned. And there's a lot of stuff that is going on that we cannot really grasp. And so we create new products, we create new ideas, new art forms, proliferating and celebrating the kind of work that you feel has some kind of relevance. Welcome to Speak Like a CEO, the leading podcast on CEO communications. My name is Oliver Aust. I'm the CEO and founder of EOPSA Communications. Normally, I'm here with Nina Carlson, my wonderful co-host, but she's currently traveling, so it's just going to be me today interview our guest. I'm really excited about this interview because I've been trying to convince him to come on the podcast for some months now, and finally he relented. He doesn't give a lot of interviews, but has a lot to say. And for more than a quarter of a century, Robert Clanton has been a key figure in the global creative industry, helping to reimagine the way we approach publishing. He has driven has participated in over 800 publications and commercial projects. He's the CEO and founder of Gestalten, the publishing house, which you probably know from the iconic, wonderful, inspirational, illustrated books on the market, inspiring people all over the world. And he's been behind the company and the brand for the last 25 years. Hi, Robert. Hi, Oliver. Thank you so much for the uh, glowing introduction and for having me on your show. Robert, tell me, why do you do what you do? Well, I do what I do because it's actually what I'd like to do. And sort of when I was a kid, I was always aspiring to be having a career within creativity. So I was always curious about new ideas, new, new ways of expression popular culture and art and all these kind of things. So, you know, I'm, I'm in a very, very sophisticated position. I, I get to learn and, and, and get to know so many new ideas and people that it's very hard to imagine that there's any other thing that I want to be doing. Yeah, and, um, that, that's, that's completely understandable. I mean, given the, you know, the number of interesting projects and people you're allowed to interact with. Let's, let's dial back a little bit to 1995 when you set up the company because at the time, it was much less common to you know, become an entrepreneur, set up your own company than it is today. Tell us a little bit about the origin story of Gestalt. Well, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an industrial designer by trade. So I, I learned to design uh, cars, workspaces, furniture and all that. And around late 80s, beginning 90s, the first desktop computers came up. And that really sparked a kind of wave of new creativity. You wouldn't have to be employed in a bigger company to be able to, to access these kind of tools and be able to do something creatively. And so that, that was so much more interesting than anything that I could have done at the time in a more traditional line of work. Do you remember what your first book was? The, book, the first book you published? Oh, yeah, I do. The first book we published was a book called Localizer on club culture, techno culture. It was an interesting project. I mean, back in the days, a lot of the graphic design underground was very much something that communicated with each other and created flyers and artwork for record labels and these kind of things. So it was a little bit of a left field culture. So we thought, okay, why not bring a lot of these guys together and publish their work in a book? Uh, we didn't have any money, so we printed some order forms into magazines as a kind of barter deals, collected 1,100 order forms, brought them to the bank, borrowed some money, printed the book, sold the book. 
And there was this kind of epiphany that I was sitting in this hole of an office somewhere on Oranienburgerstrasse, which was, it was dripping literally through the ceiling. The guy came in and say, well, I want to have two books. Just out of curiosity, I asked, okay, where do you want to bring the books? He said, a Nike sent me, I have to bring them to Portland. That, that really started me in a way that I, I kept looking or I thought about something that might be interesting beyond just releasing one publication. Yeah, yeah, very cool. I mean, it's quite a big leap from, you know, that first book about club culture to becoming a globally recognized and, and respected brand that, you know, a lot of people in the metropolis of the world know about. You know, what's the secret sauce behind building such a globally recognized brand? Oh, uh, I'm not really sure there's, there's a kind of a secret. I think um, a lot of it has to do with taking the right decisions. And, and publishing and celebrating the kind of work that you feel has some kind of relevance. And it's always important that one way or the other, you're, you're a little bit ahead of the wave and, and not behind the wave. And you have to always find a way to engage with people who, who are relevant and, and will be relevant and stay relevant for, for other people who may have the same beliefs, the, the same ideas. So I think in general... It's, it's definitely pick and choose. There's a lot of luck in this and definitely also quite a lot of hard labor. But I think essentially what we did right from the start is we focused on English language publication. We thought we're dealing with something that is fresh. So let's put it together and then send it around the globe and sell it locally. And uh, so that might have helped quite a bit. I mean, books are obviously a medium, and do they have a particular meaning for you? Do you do you think they're particularly meaningful compared to other media? I think the, the answer is, is maybe a little bit more complex. I, I do not necessarily see our our value creation uh, in, in in putting ink on paper. We're not printers, so actually, what we do is we're we're finding content, we're we're looking at it to to find out whether it's relevant. And then we put it together in the right shape and form to actually relay it to, 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 to people who might be interested. And that is so much more than just putting it on paper. I think what makes books relevant, and I'm not just talking about our books, I'm talking about a lot of books, is that to a lot of people, there's still a kind of guarantee that it has been a process that has been diligently edited, and or there is a process that 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 included an amount of editing and at the end of the day so people are aware that there is a kind of a process behind it that fosters quality one way or the other we have to put money into the publication and so other believe other people believe that this um creates products that can be trusted and that will and are trustworthy on their own ground and that's totally true with, in comparison to a lot of other stuff that goes on online. It's, it's pretty easy to do something online and, and so on and so forth. If you, you sort of miss something uh, and, and if you forgot to, to ask the right copyright proprietors for whatever reason, uh, your books will be pulped. So you have to be diligent. You have to be very, very reasonable with what you bring in and what you don't. And that means that most of the time the books are sort of uh, something that, that is long-lasting. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. There's nothing inherently superior about you know, ink on paper, but it has gone through this process of diligence and creativity and longevity that uh, usually uh, it's, a, it's, it's work of higher quality compared to some more fleeting media. Is that fair? 
I think there is something in it which maybe for 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 my for our generations and but also seems for younger generations seems to be desirable in a way. I mean, I, I haven't heard of anybody that any website made anybody cry or that people have been people don't necessarily queue around the block for uh, for the Fire and Fury app or something like that. So it is it is really that something that for whatever reason. I think us humans still believe in in, in, in material and, and, and something that is tangible for whatever reason. It's, it seems to be deeply re- rooted in us. And for us, these, these, these products seem to have some kind of a quality that, that certainly changes over time. And so when, I, when we started, you know, paperbacks were all around. So, I mean, most of, most of the books were paperbacks, simple, cheap paperbacks copies and these books are gone these days yeah and so a lot of a lot of what has been out there back in the day is now being replaced by other media but still books on the books that we do um, tend to uh, either inform they provide information or they inspire uh, so they create something to aspire to or they uh, identify and they help people to to maybe get a better idea of who they are or maybe also maybe convey a better idea of what they want somebody else to be. So that is the three elements that I feel still uh, make a book um, uh, valuable these days. Yeah, yeah. and you know, even though, as, as you said, the end of print has been proclaimed many, many times, you're obviously also a digital force. You have over 200,000 followers on social media, in particular Instagram, where it's, I think, over 180,000. That is quite a lot. I mean, there are a few digital companies that have that many followers. How, how do you explain this? Well, I think we're not, we're not, we're not analog telephone. You know, it's, it's not like we're sitting in our cave and uh, where we just leave, leave the rest of the, the world be. I think uh, our idea has always been that um, the people we're in touch with, they are, they are sort of multifaceted and they consume very different, they are, they're active in various different channels of media. And so they engage with all forms of, of content in various shapes and forms. And so therefore, I think our belief has always been that we wouldn't necessarily want these people to bring to whatever our books uh, may be located in the bookstore, but we would very much like to bring our content and the books to the people. So we, we just sort of try to engage with people where they are. So we take snippets of content and then we, we throw them somewhere out there and then people are maybe able to, to engage with something that they haven't known about, that they didn't know about. That looks interesting for whatever reason, and they feel, "Well, that's interesting. I never heard about that before." And actually, uh, the designer is great, or this photographer is amazing. Oh, by the way, uh, the work is featured in a book. Oh, publisher, I never heard of that. But you know, so you have this kind of conversion funnel, and this is this is this is a lot of fun doing. I'm totally aware that the online cons- con- community isn't exactly the, the book buying community, but you can't miss out on it. I mean, social media is like gravity. You cannot negotiate. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way of putting it. And uh, what I admire about your business is the, the ecosystem you've created with fantastic social media content, obviously the physical books, uh, great newsletter, website, etc. So you're creating many, many touch points and lead people through you know, the, the acquisition journey if they choose to do so. And if they just enjoy the content online, I guess that, that's fine too. And maybe over time, you know, they, they, they will have this 
you know, will have the income or the inclination to uh, to buy books as well. Exactly, exactly. And I think, um, thank God, media uh, and 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 uh, social media, internet allows us to to send our content around the globe and allows people to engage with with content that they never heard about. I just got a letter, uh, an email. No, not email. I got contacted through Instagram from a graphic designer in Sri Lanka. And she was asking about a certain book. She couldn't find any. And so I said, okay, well, let's look. Maybe we've got a copy. And send it to her. Yeah. And so it's, 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 it's amazing that, you know, you are in touch with so many people around the globe directly. And, and it's, 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 it's a very rewarding and very pleasant process to, to be engaged with, with the kind of community that is all very active and aspiring. And how do you spread the word in the U.S., for instance? I know you go there quite a lot. Uh, is it really that, you know, the messenger has to go over and talk to the right people? Or what's, what's the key to success entering such a big market? Well, that's, that's a very good question. And probably a, it might be a very long answer. But I think uh, there's, there are a couple of key factors. I think uh, First of all, um, you have to somehow be local. You, you, cannot, you cannot just sit here and, and, and sort of expect Americans to just buy the books because there are some interesting content. And I think this, 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 this guy, Dieter Bohlen, who I dis, despise deeply, uh, said something which is essentially true. The, the Americans look upon us like we look upon the Polish guy. And they do not really expect Germans to come up with something that is interesting for them. And so... To some extent, it's true. So you have to somehow, when you go there, you have to, you have to find a way for them to be able to connect to your content. And I think what I learned over time is that in the USA, still a lot of what we consider to be normal and to be whatever the rule is, 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 is very different. So um, they behave in a very different way. Creativity is organized in a different way. Uh, back in the 90s when we, you know, the little creative offices popped up like mushrooms in America, people were still, whatever, working in cubicles at Saatchi and Saatchi or whatever. And it was, you know, it, was, it felt like they were 10 years behind. And I think to some extent uh, that certainly isn't the case anymore, but still um, the way that creativity is organized and perceived and communicated is slightly different. And you, you have to allow them, you have to give them the chance to, to actually see, see, see the world for what it is and inspire them that there's interesting stuff going on out of sight, their state borders. And, and was there a moment where you broke through into the American market or was it just a constant grind over the years and slowly building step after step? No, I think it's very gradually. I mean, we, we, we went there... 95, 96, and, and uh, I think the first years were really cool and very nice. And there was a lot of graphic design going on these days. And then uh, there was a little bit of a dent after 9-11 because um, um, Americans did maybe for one or two years very much sort of looked upon themselves and, and were, were very much consuming books on, I, th I don't know, conspiracy theory and, you know, the Islam and all that stuff. So the kind of more positive perspective on the world that we are offering, that we are trying to offer, wasn't really very high on their agenda. And then 
time after time, certainly with our expansion into also other fields like architecture, interior design, we were certainly able to engage with a lot of communities, uh, starting with uh, New York City, Los Angeles, and uh, so well, Chicago, local creativity hubs uh, were where we really sort of took off. Many of us think of creativity in a sort of monolithic way, that it's just there and you can tap into it. And you just alluded to the fact that it's actually changing over time and it's different in different parts of the world, right? Absolutely, yes, absolutely. And I think it's, um, well, back in the days when whatever, when I was going to design school, you most of the people had the idea they are becoming a designer and that's what they do for the rest of their life. So they become a topographer, that's what they do. They become a graphic designer and illustrator and that's what they do. And, uh, and that has really gone out of the window of time. And, uh, so people are much more sort of um, finding their own paths, looking into various different forms. And there's a lot of interesting stuff just b- happening between the traditional disciplines. You know, for example, um, um, there was this idea of temporary architecture pop- popping up a couple of years ago. You know, and then in first place, you thought, OK, temporary architecture, give me a break. Why would I want this? You know, I want to build a building. And a lot of young architects said, well, that's not exactly what I want to do. I don't want to create a concrete hull. I want to engage with people. I want to create something that, you know, may help with urbanism and uh, create uh, create different solutions for, I don't know, mobility, sustainability, local communities, and, and engage with these people in a very different way. And that was very idealistic, but the, the general idea was picked up by a lot of brands. So what happened then is that they created something like pop-up stores and container architecture. So they thought, okay, if, if whatever, this kind of interaction, the atmosphere is more important and I can bring together, I can bring people together around a certain subject on, on a certain occasion for a limited amount of time, just by creating spectacular architecture or something that creates a special mood or atmosphere, that's probably something that can help my brand. And this is really how sort of brand architecture uh, moved out of uh, out of the fairs and into the wild and cities. Now you have car companies selling their cars in the middle of, I don't know where, a village. And so you, you see how these kind of uh, radical ideas is sort of, the, the way of thinking something very differently than, than it has traditionally been done may help with something at a very, very different level. And this is, this is so fascinating that, you know, once creativity is out of the box, it's, it's, it's very hard to say where it's going and what it might, what it might help to create for, for a company or society. Interesting, yeah. So I guess the world is shaping creativity, then creativity is shaping the world, and they're sort of mutually connected, uh, symbiotic, and constantly, constantly changing. Yeah, I think. Well, the yes, my 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 two cents on it might be that in a way, I think there's two main factors: there's um, technology and, and and sociology that that are driving us as human beings, and and there's a lot of stuff that is going on that that we cannot really sort of grasp in a way, but we may find it in, interesting or and and we're using creativity to to express our curiosity and our aspiration with what we just learned. And so we create new products, we create new ideas, new 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 art forms. And and uh, this this is 
on the one side, something that is a kind of a reaction on something that has been invented. On the other side, the way we do it creates technology itself. You, you know that sometimes when you look at some stuff around us it's, it's, or some of, some, of, some of the ideas that are visionary, you see how they, much, how they have been conceived in, let's say, science fiction movies. You know, it's not that science fiction is, 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 is uh, imitating life, but it's like life is imitating science fiction in a way that, you know, people are driving, sort of dreaming of flying cars and, and beaming and whatever, these kind of, these kind of uh, fancy ideas of how the future might look like. And actually, it's something that, in first place, human beings have been dreaming about, and then they have been creating something that may have been totally elusive. But then, time after time, it, it sparked the idea for, for a real product. Yeah, and yeah. Because that, that, that is some kind of an interaction that, that I find very, very interesting. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and would you say that creativity is in good shape at the moment? Mm. I wouldn't say it's in good shape. It's, it's, it's definitely in flux. So there are a lot of things pulling creativity in various different directions. And so that is, that's, that's definitely, it's definitely a very, very interesting time because so many people have access uh, to the tools to be creative and, and to, do, to do something. On the other side, also the kind of, the, the kind of standardization of, of tools and softwares, I find does turn a lot of people into just consumers and they're just consuming instead of, you know, doing themselves something themselves, learning an instrument or drawing or, or whatever they want to be doing or programming something. They're just mere consumers and they look at what other people have been doing. And that is something which, which I feel is, is, is certainly a, a kind of a tendency that, that doesn't really help. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If, if I wanted to be more creative, what would be your, your top advice for anyone, you know, trying to be more creative? Well, I think in first place, you have to be somehow courageous. You have to be also somehow pursuing something that you find interesting and not really look at what's been done before. And, and, but on the other side, you shouldn't really sort of say, I have to invent, reinvent the wheel, just like whatever. Uh, creativity is something that that works gradually and sometimes it's about learning a craft you know if you if you learn to draw in the beginning it's hard and then over time you can do it better and better and then at a certain po point you, you can do something which is you know beyond playbook beyond something that you already learned so i think learning a craft is, is definitely providing you with with disciplines and tools to be creative it really sort of helps you to to get the, the ideas out in the open on the other side, the tools shouldn't really limit you. It shouldn't really sort of tell you work with presets or just use the samples that are in a computer. You have to misuse the tools. You have to, you have to do something that is more daring. You have to destroy them. And that will eventually create something that isn't already in the presets. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Where do you think publishing is heading? I mean, it's been an industry that's been disrupted and changed, and it's, you know, it's, it's, in a way it's alive and kicking, but it's very different from 25 years ago when you started. So where do you think it will be in a few years from now? Well, I think uh, publishing is, is a multifaceted industry, and there's not the one publishing industry 
there probably never was. But I think uh, certainly uh, back in the days, a lot of publishing was centered around local communities, your local paper, your uh, local TV station, your national TV station, your radio station. That's where you got the papers. And I think in general, uh, there's definitely a, a bigger tendency that people organize around their interest. And the people they're interested in, the subject they're interested in, they may not really sort of be located in your city. They not, may not be located in your, in your country. So publishing is reorganized from being whatever very vertical to be very horizontal. So that you have a very slim kind of altitude, a sort of group of a niche of people, and they may be spread around the globe in various different communities. And this is how you inter- interact with them. They might be interesting in something that, that only you might provide. And ideally, uh, you have become a kind of a gatekeeper for content. They trust you. So whether you are publishing on jazz music or you're a publisher on, I don't know, uh, on uh, academic subjects or whether you just whatever publishing around romantic tours around the globe i mean it doesn't really matter but you can find your niche and you can find your community in the most distant places and a lot of these people will be very very uh, dedicated followers of what you do so gatekeeper is definitely something that that will be key uh, for future publishing yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that's probably why you see the same magazines and books like yours uh, and, and sort of most of the metropolises around the world, right? Because you, you need that global readership, global audience that's, that's no longer geographically concentrated in any area. That's totally right. Uh, I think there is uh, also this, uh, this kind of force is, is always sort of um, mirrored by, by kind of a counter force, something that, that works in the opposite direction. On the one side, there is this very strong tendency of a global community uh, that sort of knows what's cool and they're interested in whatever Scandinavian furniture, even though they're located in New Zealand or whatever, all that. At the same time, I also feel that there is this very, very strong tendency to be towards uh, multinationalism. So a lot of groups are not in first place interested to just hear about whatever a coffee guru in the USA might have to say, but they're whatever celebrating their local take on the culture. So they're very much focusing on what's going on in, I don't know, in Japan in this field. And, and they're really trying to develop something that is very unique, that is very their own, that's very sort of territorial sometimes and and there's this sort of interaction of the more global supercurrent on the other side you have this little hot spot of creativity which are driven by locals by local creativity by specialities by tradition by building materials whatever and that creates stunning stunning results which couldn't have been created in any other place yeah before we wrap it up, what would you say is your top advice on communications? And obviously, as a CEO and leader and, and sort of publishing in the publishing world, you've a lot of experience in communicating all over the world in many different forms. What, what, what's some of your top advice? I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't know if my advice would really sort of help so much. But I think what I try to do for myself is really in first place to stay curious and stay open-minded and not really take things for granted 
but really question everything that I see and, and see behind what, what, it, what, what it seems to be in first place. And, and I'll be a little bit skeptical, but on the other side, very curious and very positive about, of, of, about what the things that I see. So that is something which I feel will be a key element of, for, for any kind of future communicator. Wonderful. And I think there are actually some parallels between communications and creativity, both of sort of underlying human psychological elements to it. Um, but it's all, they're both also constantly in flux, constantly changing, constantly shaping the world and being shaped by the world. So it's quite interesting to, to look at that, actually. I think, yeah, absolutely. And I think also that in a way, innovation and, and creativity and communication really go together. Sometimes it's it's really essential that that somebody's able to just express what's what's so interesting about it. We're living in a bubble, and and sometimes you know our passion doesn't really sort of relate to anybody outside of the bubble. And if for them, it's just something that looks different or whatever, and they don't might not really get what's so special about it. And therefore, I feel it's it's really essential that as a, as a designer, as a creative person, you're able to really communicate your ideas in, in the best possible way and eventually interact with the right people. Couldn't agree more. Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show. Much, much appreciated. It's been a fascinating conversation. Lots of, lots of takeaways for me as well, and for the audience as well. Thank you and see you all next week. Thank you very much. Mark.